1: Well, so there we are. I wanted to wait for the applause to come to an end. How are you doing, RFL? I am just fine, thank you. I just let the audience
2: in on a little secret that we decided that since it's your show tonight, that you get to have the opening word, and I was going to zip the lip until you said something. And yeah. I'm happy to say I honored that promise.
1: Look at that, and I'll do it. I'll do it on the back end. So, uh, so, and when it's your episode, in we'll let a nice you way he the show.
2: means, folks. This is a family show, Bill.
1: Yeah. Sorry. So folks, we're really excited. I think this is going to be a great episode. I think RFM found another golden nugget tonight that will come into play and we'll, I'm excited to to dive into that with all of you. Uh, folks, we are doing Mormonism live. Uh, we've been doing this now for a few years. If, if there's any chance, by the way, thank you to everybody who supports this program. Uh, it is deeply meaningful that we have so much in donations that we can uh, financially uh, pay RFM, pay myself essentially and be able to uh, do this work uh, to a large extent at this point now, full-time. And so thank you to all of you uh, who support this program. If you would like to support the program, we would love that. Uh, We could certainly use more donations. And if you go to mormonismlive.org and click the donate button, uh, a five or $10 donation is great. If you could do five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month, uh, that's, we love recurring donations. Those are, those are also uh, very helpful to know kind of what's coming in the future. And uh, I think you're going to see, based on things like the episodes we've done in the past and tonight's episode, that I think these conversations are well worth our understanding of Mormonism and what it has been and what it is, and also to understand, uh, for the leaders to understand that we're going to, to some degree, hold them accountable by the things that they say. And I think that's a big deal as well. And so, RFM, anything from you before we jump into uh, tonight's episode?
2: Yes, in a limited sense, we are upholding the highest standards of the press in holding and keeping leaders accountable for what they say and do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you're going to see by tonight, uh, by the end of tonight, you're going to see that there are LDS leaders who continually seem to intentionally try to deceive you. And uh, we're going to lay it out really plainly. And I think that everybody watching will be able to draw those conclusions. And I thought this would be a fun episode too. This, this conversation started because, uh, I reached out to you maybe a week or so ago, week and a half ago. Uh, maybe it was even at the end of last week's episode, but said that I wanted to, for the first time in my life to read Lester Bush's article from, I think it's dialogue. It is. And, uh, I read that you've read that. And, uh, I'm quite impressed with all the ground that Lester Bush covers, and there were things that I, I knew, but there were a couple of things I didn't know, and we're going to show the documentation for those tonight, uh, but I, I think Lester Bush created this moment where the church could sort of reflect on what it said in the past and choose a new path, and that path led to Spencer W. Kimball reading the Lester Bush article. His son said that he you know underlined spots and really read the whole thing intentionally and that it led in a large degree to the change that came in 1978. And I think that is uh, monumental. It speaks volumes about the impact that those that are nuanced on the inside and those who have deconstructed and left on the outside, what influence we can have when we keep shining a light on the truth.
2: Right. And for those of you who don't know, Lester Bush wrote this article that was published in dialogue back in 1973, August, I believe was the month. And in it, he gives a, historical analysis of the development of the priesthood ban and it's a somewhat lengthy article but he doesn't mince a lot of words it's very packed with information and what he does is he ends up showing that there is no revelatory basis for this in fact none is even claimed for this so um, after untethering the priesthood ban from the arguments that typically were made by members of the church and by leaders of the church, it left the door open for it to be overturned five years later.
1: Yeah. And so I'm going to put the slideshow here up and uh, we can begin. So the first one, I'll let you kind of give these first few, uh, give us some context to them. But the first one I've got up here is Abraham chapter one, uh, 22,
2: 21 through 22 and 26 through 27. Right. And 27, I think is the, money verse in this, but this is from Abraham chapter one, as you've already stated, it became canonized scripture in 1880. And it uh, starts with 21 like this. Now this King of Egypt was a descendant from the loins of ham and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites by birth from this descent sprang all the Egyptians and thus the blood of the Canaanites was preserved in the land pharaoh being a righteous man just skip to verse 26 pharaoh being a righteous man established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations in the days of the first patriarchal reign even in the reign of adam and also of noah his father that would be pharaoh's father apparently maybe grandfather Noah certainly isn't adam's father Okay. Who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. And then 27, the money quote. Now, Pharaoh being of that lineage by which he could not have the right of priesthood, notwithstanding the Pharaohs would fain claim it from Noah through Ham. Therefore, my father was led away by their idolatry.
1: So you already have in Mormon scripture, in our canon today, this idea that uh, Pharaoh, um, being of the lineage of uh, Ham and uh, the Canaanites, is is cursed in terms of not being able to have access to the priesthood.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the straightforward reading of it. Uh, There are a number of things that could be said about it. He says a number of things about it in his article, speaking of Lester Bush, his article. Um, I don't know that I really want to say too much more about it here. He expressed a surprise in his article that this particular argument doesn't show up until 1885 uh, by B.H. Roberts makes the argument from Abraham chapter one. I went back and did some research on it this morning. And given the fact that it was not canonized until 1880, maybe it's not so surprising that this argument didn't show up until a bit
1: late. And while, and while what you're saying is that, um, Abraham wasn't directly used as a justification for the priesthood ban, I think we find kind of echoes of Abraham in several of the quotes that we'll go through tonight. So I, I, they don't point to it directly as you're saying, but there seems to be the same kind of justification that this is where it sort of comes from. Although we'll also see that it's sort of in the milieu at the time as well, uh, folks outside the church are also seeing the African race as sort of cursed by God and in falling into some sort of, that their color came from some sort of sin uh, of their lineage, I guess is what I would want to say. The next one you've got, oh, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, yes, at that time, everybody pretty much understood and accepted the idea that there was a curse, the curse of Cain upon the uh, the black people And that this justified and was used to justify enslaving them, as well as, well, I don't know if you can uh, be prejudiced against a people any more than enslaving them. That pretty much does everything. But it was used as a justification. And back shortly after I got back from my mission, I was watching TV. This would be 1982 or so. Watching, for the first time, the musical 1776, which is sort of like the Hamilton of its era, except it deals with the Declaration of Independence anyway. There's a scene in it where somebody from the South, one of the representatives from the South, is talking about uh, bearing the mark of Cain and talking about slavery, right? And my eyes kind of got wide. I'm sure nobody else was in the room, but I'll testify that that's the case because I had never heard of this outside of Mormonism before. This was my first introduction to the idea that this concept was quite widely believed at the time. And I'm reading your lips now, and you're saying, geez, RFM, you look very, very handsome. Sorry tonight. about
1: that. That's okay. So you can continue. Before we get to Moses, I also want to be just clear with the audience. Several of the quotes tonight will have, uh, the, and I'll just say it, the term Negro. And we're going to read some of these quotes directly. Uh, I'm very aware that the language that we've used around people of color all through our history in today's understanding, and in the, that day's, by the way, but it was justified then. And our day's understanding is very offensive But I do think it's very important that we hold the leaders of the LDS church to their own words. And so, folks, please forgive the uh, offensiveness to some degree of these words as we read what past leaders of the church have said. With that, will you jump into Moses here, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, and give us the second one that is in our canon as well.
2: Right. This is sometimes referred to, though it's not as pointed as the one in Abraham chapter 1. Moses chapter seven, verses six through eight. And again, the Lord said unto me, this would be unto Enoch, who was writing hand here, look, and I looked towards the north, and I beheld the people of Canaan, which dwelt in tents. And the Lord said unto me, prophesy, and I prophesied, saying, behold, the people of Canaan, which are numerous, shall go forth in battle array against the people of Shum, and shall slay them that they shall utterly be destroyed. And the people of Canaan shall divide themselves in the land, and the land shall be barren and unfruitful and none other people shall dwell there but the people of Canaan. For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan, that they were despised among all people.
1: There seems to be, and I don't know, I'm not a biblical scholar in this this facet, but um, Canaan seems to be drawn, the connection seems to be drawn that these are the people of Cain who went and formed Canaan. Is that right? Like that seems to be the connection that all of these quotes seem to make as we go through the night.
2: Well, it's, and this is one of the reasons this doesn't get marshaled too often, not as often as Abraham chapter one, because it's a bit indistinct as to what it's referring to. It does appear that Canaan, uh, does bad things. These people did bad things. They destroyed the people of Shem, and therefore their land was cursed with great heat, and then they were cursed as well with a blackness that came upon all the children of Canaan, and they were despised among all people. There's this idea of a, a curse that comes upon them, sort of like the Book of Mormon, as opposed to it being a curse that's passed down uh, lineally. In other words, these people aren't born of Black people—they're not black at their birth. This blackness comes upon them as a divine judgment. It appears.
1: Yeah, and I won't—we won't go into the Book of Mormon tonight. But I just want to note for the record on this episode that there is tons of this kind of idea of people being cursed with uh, a darker skin color throughout the Book of Mormon. While that deals with the uh, allegedly the uh, ancestors of the Native Americans. Uh, it is also involving a cursing of skin color, and so we won't spend any time there. But just to note that there are other places in our scriptural record that seem to indicate that God works this way. He takes people, and when, they're, when they don't behave right, he gives them dark skin.
2: Right, and this um, was translated in the Book of Moses within a year of the publication of the Book of Mormon.
1: Yeah. So now we've got the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate. This is uh, April 1836, I believe. This is the big picture. We'll zoom into the pertinent section. But I just want to note that the red boxed area says Joseph Smith. This is Joseph Smith, who wrote this long article, and he's defending... So the, the church is in this tight position where they, they've kind of been supporting the end of slavery, but now... Uh, they're starting to get kind of pushed back against by the South and by those who support. Let me say it differently. Joseph Smith in the church is taking this view where they're against slavery and uh, but they're getting suddenly people are starting to like criticize the church for that. So they need to create a position where they sort of walk the line. And this is the article in the messenger and advocate where Joseph Smith writes out that position. And I just want to note, by the way, if you go in through and you read this, it actually reads like a very coherent, very well thought out perspective. I actually uh, was quite uh, impressed with how Joseph Smith walked the line. I only say that because again, we paint Joseph Smith often as a dummy and an article like this clearly shows that he is uh, uh, thinking about things deeply and he has the ability to articulate things very well. Um, But I want to zoom in on just a couple of these in consequence of their holding the sons of ham, in servitude, and then he then he reads the scripture from Genesis, and he said, "Cursed be Canaan, a servant of the servant, shall he be unto his brethren." And he said, "Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan, shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be a servant." By the way, this is also a connection to what you read in Abraham. This is the stuff that Joseph Smith is thinking about in 1836 and shortly thereafter. The book of Abraham is uh, translated and comes into existence.
2: It was actually probably because that's chapter one. It was probably late or mid 1835, the year before. But this passage yeah. right here, that is the proof text that was used to justify slavery from the Bible.
1: Yeah. And then I'll oh, oh, go ahead. That was it. OK. And then over to the right. I can say that the curse is not yet taken off the sons of Canaan. Neither will be until it is affected by as great a power as caused it to come. In other words, God. Mm -hmm. So until God takes it away because God put it there, it can't happen. Times and seasons, April 1845, after the flood and after Ham had dishonored the holy priesthood, Noah awoke from uh, his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. He'd seen him naked, walked in on his dad naked. That's that's serious dishonor the holy
2: priesthood, like having your son see you lying drunk and naked.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't want that kind of thing to happen. Mm-mm. And uh, as the priesthood descended from father to son, he delivered the following curse and blessing as translated by King James, wise men and recorded in Genesis. And behold, cursed be Canaan, a servant of the servants, shall he be unto his brethren. So he, he goes into the same kind of line of thinking, but then the underlying part, the descendants of Ham, besides a black skin, which had ever been a curse, that has followed an apostate of the holy priesthood, as well as black, a black heart have been servants to both Shem and Japheth and the abolitionist are trying to make void the curse of God, but it will require more power than man can possess to counteract the dec- the decrees of eternal wisdom. So sort of the same line of reasoning uh, in that as well. Any thoughts there from you?
2: Yeah, just a couple of things. First off, historically speaking, I think most people know that Uh, The Mormons came from the north, from New York to Ohio, but then they went south to Missouri. And so they very typically were not in favor of slavery being from the north. By the way, this is, of course, the 1830s and the Civil War is not going to break out until 1861. But this is a huge issue. It's such a huge issue that on Christmas Day of 1832, I believe it was, Joseph Smith receives a revelation about wars that are going to break out. And as part of those wars, slaves will rise up against their masters. Very big concern that that would happen. But anyway, so Joseph Smith has to do this political tap dance and his lieutenants need to be doing it too. Here I'm thinking of Sidney Rigdon and W.W. Phelps particularly, but they don't want to get tossed out of the entire state like they'd already been tossed out in 1833 from Jackson County and they had to move into a northern county in Missouri still. But they have to do all this stuff they have to try and play nice with slavery and that sounds like a horrible thing to say and it is a horrible thing to say but they're trying not to rile up the people in missouri who are very sympathetic to slavery and by coming out and saying okay it's okay to slavery is bad they don't want it to appear as abolitionists for purely political reasons because they got to stay there because that's where the temple is that's where the city of zion is going to be built Everything that we already know about from church history, it's very important that they be allowed to remain there. And this impacts a bunch of other things that are related to slavery, whether um, free blacks are allowed to come into Missouri. And how do you baptize a slave? Can you baptize a slave or a free black? And do you have to have the master's permission? And all sorts of ancillary issues come into play here. Uh, The other thing I would say, and I'm sorry, uh, I apologize. I know you're trying to get through this so you can get to some other points, Bill. The other thing that occurs to me is that in the Old Testament, frequently we find double stories. And by that, I mean uh, stories that are told to justify something. Like why it was that Saul lost his kingship to David. There's two different stories about that. Both of them designed to justify it. And they both get included. And you can tell that different storytellers who are coming up with different ideas. This is an example of it, I think, because the question then is that has to be resolved by these Bible believers at this time has to do with this curse that gets transmitted through Ham and his wife, Ham being a son of Noah, of course, and preserved, his lineage preserved because he got spared in the flood, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved, right? So one way of explaining this is that Ham, obviously, his lineage is cool because he comes through Noah. And it can't be through Noah's wife because Japheth and Shem are good too, right? So then the theory comes, oh, it's Egyptus. It's this other person who carries the curse whom Ham marries and then has offspring with, right? That's one of the uh, theories about how this curse was preserved in the land. And I think that's hinted at, and maybe even more than hinted at in Abraham chapter one. But the second one is this, this story right here, is that it didn't have to do with Ham's wife. It had to do with Ham himself. And making this story about him seeing his father naked, which, I mean, I don't see that that's really Ham's fault. I mean, he comes in and says, hey, dad, you want to watch TV, the ball game or something? And there's his dad drunk and naked on the couch for the you know umpteenth time. And so I don't know why that's his fault. But this story then gets used and turned around in order to insert a reason for it. And the whole thing is that, yeah, he got cursed. Ham got cursed because of this. And therefore, his descendants were cursed because of Ham's action here. And it had nothing to do with his wife. Two completely different stories in order to account for this.
1: And just to show Dan Vogel, if you go back and read that Messenger and Advocate article in full... Uh, let me just have it up here for a second. So as early as 1831, while working on his revision of the Bible, Smith reinforced the pro-slavery interpretation passage in Genesis. And then uh, goes on to continue uh, the kind of information on that as well. But if you read that messenger and advocate, Joseph Smith is basically saying, you know, it's not our job to end slavery. There'd be a lot of bloodshed if we did. The South shouldn't tell the North what to do any more than the North should tell the South what to do and and so Dan's right Joseph at that point seems to take a sort of I'm not really for slavery but I'm not going to fight it and we should leave it alone and it'll take care of itself at some point <clears throat> all right um I want to move on here so we'll we'll go through a few more dead prophets before we get to some living ones Yay. brigham young dead prophet uh, society yeah you've got the dead prophet society Arpe remember Diem. living living prophets trump dead prophets so <clears throat> Uh, Brigham Young's this is the moment where it sort of becomes official. Brigham Young on January 6th of 1852 says, any man having one drop of the seed of Cain in him cannot hold the priesthood. And if no other prophet ever spake it before, I will say it now in the name of Jesus Christ. That seems pretty official from a prophet. He said it in an address before the legislative assembly of the territory Of Utah, which is sort of a strange place to declare church doctrine. But again, in a state that mixes uh, politics with religion so smoothly, uh, I can see why that might have happened.
2: Right. And um, I will say also that in that Moses chapter one, uh, Moses chapter seven, that we read before, it doesn't say anything about the priesthood like it does in Abraham chapter one. But then again, why would it say anything about the priesthood when the concept of the priesthood, at least the way we understand it today, did not exist in the LDS church in 1831, early 1831, when Joseph Smith is translating the book of Moses.
1: Yep, perfect. All right, so then uh, from oh, there... And one other thing. Oh, please.
2: Brigham Young <clears throat> never, ever attempts to link this teaching to Joseph Smith, which is something he surely would have done if Joseph Smith had taught this. And in fact, he even indicates that Joseph Smith did not teach this in that passage. If no other prophet ever spake it before, I will say it now in the name of Jesus Christ. So even in this one statement, it's very interesting because of course, as you know, as it develops, then church leaders start saying, well, this is what the church has taught ever since the days of Joseph Smith. Well, Brigham Young's right after Joseph Smith. It's 1852, and he's acting like Joseph Smith never said anything about it. And I'll say it if nobody else ever did.
1: Yep. And we'll find that we won't really get into that later, but there were several people very close to Joseph who claimed that Joseph didn't. And then there are sort of people kind of a layer away that claimed he did. And so there is a lot of discussion that happens in the church in the, you know, early 70s mid seventies, leading up to the 78 revelation where they're trying to get it in, in earlier too. Cause I think that's what you're looking at your faces from the earlier moment, but where they're trying to figure out whether this was official or whether it wasn't, did it start with Joseph? Did it start with Brigham? There's sort of that debate going on kind of in the background. All right. The next one is Orson Hyde. This was the earliest moment I could find where the church has a, uh, makes an official statement that links people of color to their valiancy in the pre-mortal earth life. And so Orson Hyde says, At the time the devil was cast out of heaven, there were some spirits that did not know who had the authority, whether God or the devil. They consequently did not take a very active part on either side, but rather thought the devil had been abused and considered he had rather the best claim to the government. Uh, so they had a succession crisis. It looks like of some sort. These spirits were not considered bad enough to be cast down to hell and never have bodies. Neither were they considered worthy of an honorable body on this earth. Um, it says, but those spirits in heaven that rather lent an influence to the devil, thinking he had little, he had little the best right to govern. I don't understand the way they write, but but he had, did just, not, he
2: had the right he had the best right to govern by a little bit is okay. how I interpret that.
1: But did not take a very active part anyway, were required to come into the world and take bodies in the accursed lineage of Canaan and hence the Negro African race. And so here's this first moment that I know of in Mormon history where how valiant somebody was in the pre-mortal earth life uh, is is leading to somebody being cursed. Uh, with a black skin. Then we end up with this famous correspondence. Um, it's been talked about in several places. It's it's actually quite interesting that this survived and we have the copies of the dialogue back and forth. But a Dr. Lowry Nelson corresponds with uh, like the mission president and the mission president then puts him in touch with the first presidency. And the first presidency writes Dr. Lowry Nelson back and forth. And, I and wasn't out, this when
2: he wasn't this when Lowry Nelson had been sent? Was it Cuba, in order to you know scope it out and see if this would be a good place for missionary work?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know the background story in full. I just know that he reached out to somebody at a lower level of leadership, and they put him in touch with the first presidency, and the first presidency actually corresponds with him. Um, but he essentially makes the point that if you're going to spread the gospel to these certain places in the world where there is a large number of people of color, that you're going to have a really serious issue if you don't give the priesthood to everybody. Um, and and so the church leadership, George Albert Smith, president of the church, J. Reuben Clark and David O. McKay as counselors, 1947, write him back and forth. And here's what they say. Uh, Your knowledge of the gospel will indicate to you that this is contrary to the very fundamentals of of God's dealings with Israel dating from the time of his promise to Abraham regarding Abraham's seed and their position, vis a vis God himself. Indeed, none of God's children were assigned to superior positions before the world was formed. We are aware that some higher critics do not, ex- some, sorry, some of God's children were assigned to superior positions before the world was formed. Now we get that, right? Abraham. Uh, was one of the great and mighty ones and ends up in, in the pre life, earth life, and ends up getting this responsibility to be a prophet in his uh, mortal life. Um, we are aware that some higher critics do not accept this, but the church does. <clears throat> then he says, the first presidency, that is, they say, your position seems to lose sight of the revelations of the Lord touching the pre existence of our spirits, the rebellion in heaven, and the doctrines that our birth into this life and the advantages under which we may be born have a relationship in the life heretofore. From the days of the prophet Joseph Smith until now, it has been the doctrine of the church, never questioned by any of the church leaders that the Negroes are not entitled to the full blessings of the gospel. And then just below that in red is just them saying that interracial marriage is also contrary to church doctrine. And and I find it interesting, I mean the church has no question about this. George Albert Smith, J Reuben Clark, David O McKay, prophet seers and revelators, they know this is true. They know this is the doctrine of the church. Any thoughts here on this one? Two things. It's
2: interesting that Larry Nelson himself an active member of the church and apparently fairly well versed in Mormonism is not aware of this doctrine, not aware of this policy, he may have heard about it. And that's why he's writing to check in with the mission president and then to the first presidency, because the mission president says, don't ask me, ask them. And now it becomes uh, something that becomes more and more concrete. And I will give it as my opinion that this correspondence that the first presidency had with Lowry Nelson on the subject in 1947 directly led to the first presidency statement of 1949.
1: Yeah, which we'll get to here in just a moment. I just want to note, also tied to valiancy, President Harold B. Lee taught that handicapped people were were handicapped because they were less valiant in the pre-Earth life. And I just want to note, again, in modern Mormonism, there's probably still echoes of it. I don't know that it's formally taught anywhere, but in modern Mormonism, the idea is that the handicapped folks, those who are physically or mentally challenged... And were born that way. They were the more valiant spirits in the pre-earth life, but that's not the way it always was. Um, it was taught that those who didn't ex- uh, express the same degree of faith in the pre-mortal life were given certain disadvantages in this one, such as physical or mental limitations, such as color of skin. And I just want to note: if I was sitting. If I had a handicapped child, 30-year-old, bedridden, wheelchair-bound, and I'm hearing the leadership of the church tell me that the reason my life is so, uh, and I use this word carefully, but burdened with having to take care of my adult child is because they didn't do their part in the pre-earth life. You're creating an environment where people have animosity and resentment towards the child their, their kid, because of a bullshit doctrine taught in a church that has no problem saying bullshit things.
2: Well, this is the problem in being a Christian church that, of course, like most Christian churches do, they believe in a judgment day and they believe that to some extent or other, our eternal rewards are going to be based upon what we do in this life. And when you throw in the idea of a pre mortal existence, which is not common, among Christians, but is certainly uh, a doctrine in Mormonism. Then the stage is set, and you look around you at people who are born in different circumstances, some more favorable, some less favorable, and it is ineluctable. It was only a matter of time. If Orson Hyde hadn't come up with it, somebody would have, that you look around and you see people who are disadvantaged here in this life, in whatever way you want to call it, You have to make the connection. This must be based upon what they did in the pre-mortal life, just as our our eternal rewards will be based upon what we do in this life. You've got people here who are uh, handicapped. Okay, well, they they did something wrong. They weren't valiant. You know, they ran and hid behind enemy lines when all those testimony wars were going on and the spirits were falling like flies up there in that war. And then it gets switched, right, to these were the more valiant ones. Now, we like that better, of course, <laughs> but it's coming from the same place. It's coming from the exact same rationale. Premortal actions determine mortal conditions, up to and including being born in a faithful LDS family, right? That's the best of the best. Get born there.
1: Yeah, and, and it also reconciles the idea that we're, that man is punished for his own sins and not Adam's transgression, and so when you see different stations in life by two different human beings, it's the easy way to reconcile why that would be from a just and fair God. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a way to reconcile kind of these, uh, these loose ends in Mormon theology. But what ends up happening is you end up causing lots of trauma and shame, and you marginalize people who are different. Mm-hmm. So then we get 1947. Uh, this is George F. Richards, an apostle. He says the Negro race have been forbidden the priesthood and the higher temple blessings. He does say, presumably, presumably because of their not having been valiant while in the spirit. And then he says, it does not pay to be anything but valiant. So there's George F. Richards. Again, if I was a person of color in the audience of general conference, I can't imagine how offensive this would be.
2: I think that was LeGrand Richards' dad.
1: I don't know that, but George F. Then you get what you just mentioned, the 1949 first presidency letter. Do you want to read the underlying parts? And you can kind of stay with it where the red line ends, but picks up immediately.
2: Is it possible to check out how Maven's connection is working see if she can read this? Can I bring you on, Maven?
3: Yeah. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just need to make the screen bigger. <laughs> so we're starting at the top.
1: Yeah, start with the red and just read that whole chunk of red and then the red below.
3: Okay. It's not a matter of the declaration of a policy. I'm still coming off of my cult, so this might not be good. Okay. All right. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. President Brigham Young said, Why are so many of the inhabitants of the earth cursed with a skin of blackness? It comes in consequence of their fathers rejecting the power of the holy priesthood and the law of God. And when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain. And they will then come up and possess the priesthood and receive all the blessings, which we now are entitled to. I just, of course, they're entitled to it. Um, And then the second here we go, that the worth of the privilege is so great that spirits are willing to come to earth and take on bodies, no matter what the handicap may be as to the kind of bodies they are to secure, and that among the handicaps, failure of the right to enjoy immortality, the blessings of the priesthood is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle, there is no injustice whatsoever involved in this deprivation as to the holdings of the priesthood by the Negroes, signed by the First Presidency.
2: Yeah. In that so last, a, never, go ahead maven
3: oh they never say that gender i guess is a, a handicap but i mean obviously as as a female i it's a, it's not a privilege that i have either i think that's something they just kind of conveniently maybe didn't mention or really talk about back then
1: might just be a lack of self-awareness Yeah, Yeah.
2: You can see in that last paragraph where Harold B. Lee got the idea about people with handicaps being not valiant in the premortal existence, too. It's right there.
1: Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So you can see it is an official teaching of the church that this is going on. Again, it's not a declaration of policy, but a direct commandment of the Lord, which is founded upon the doctrine of the church.
2: Since the day of its organization, April 6, 1830. Yeah. Because section 20 and 21, you know, they're all about the blacks and the priesthood.
1: Yeah. Okay, I'll move on from this one unless there's okay. anything else. Then you get 1954, Marky e. Peterson, one of our one of our favorites. Uh if that negro is faithful all his days, he can and will enter the celestial kingdom. He will go there as a servant, but he will get a celestial re- uh, resurrection. And uh I it's think that's such to a to me that
2: this is 1954 and Marky e. Peterson is talking about Black people being able to go to the Celestial Kingdom, but only as a servant, which is a synonym for slave, at least in the King James Version.
1: Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You're going to the Celestial Kingdom. Quit bitching and moaning about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder where he's getting that from. My recollection is, of course, that Jane Manning James was allowed to be sealed to Joseph Smith, but only as a servant and only by proxy. And I wonder if that is related to his statement here.
1: That seems to be the only basis upon which he could pull this teaching out and call it true. Yeah. Hmm. Then you get uh, Elvin Dyer, 1962. The reason that spirits are born into Negro bodies is that those spirits rejected the priesthood of God in the preexistence. This is the reason why you have Negroes upon the earth. Can it's, you, I just, like a, it's like a blank so canvas. Advanced.
2: You can paint anything you want on it at this point.
1: Yeah. Now they These rejected guys are so the offensive. priesthood
2: of God in the pre-existence. What does that yeah. mean?
1: Yeah, I think because Heavenly Father was the person in authority, and he designated Jesus Christ to be the steward of that, and those who supported Satan essentially worked against that authority.
2: It's all ambiguous, and I'll just leave it here that one of the big... First off, all of this is not just circular, it's backward. They're not going from what we understand to why it is that there's this priesthood ban. They're accepting the priesthood ban as legitimate and from God. And working backward from that, now they're creating all of these reasons in order to justify it.
1: But it's apparent that nowhere does God actually communicate to the brethren that these reasons are legitimate. They seem to be pulled out of either whole cloth or maybe their ass. I know,
2: but these are apostles. Who are also yeah. prophets, seers, and revelators.
1: Yeah. So then we get the 1969 First Presidency letter. And...
2: uh Oh, and by the way, Bill, I, by that, yeah. I just want to say, I mean, I don't mean that that really means anything. Unless you're a faithful, devout Latter-day Saint, and you're taught to believe that what apostles tell you is from God. And it's as good as Scripture.
1: President Nelson told us they only teach the truth. Yes, he did. And... All of this has been disavowed. Maybe we'll get to that in a moment. 1969 first presidency letter. I just want to note the first part in view of confusion that has arisen. It was decided at a meeting of the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 to restate the position of the church with regard to the Negro, both in society and in the church. And then... It goes in from the beginning of this dispensation, Joseph Smith and all the succeeding presidents of the church have taught that Negroes while spirit children of a common father and the progeny of our earthly parents, Adam and Eve were not yet to receive the priesthood for rich, for reasons, which we believe are known to God, but which he has not made fully known to man. So you already see them backing off.
2: They're not giving any reasons at this point at 69. They're affirming the ban but now they're backing off on the seed of Cain and they're backing off the pre-mortal experience and not being
1: valiant. Yeah. Uh, Our living prophet, president David O. McKay has said the seeming discrimination by the church toward the Negro is not something which originated with man, but goes back to the beginning with God. A little pre-mortal. Bump, 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 bump. (laughs) What is that sound?
2: (laughs) Well, this sounds like, well, you know, it's interesting, it's December 15th, it's 1969, and David O. McKay is going to pass away in one month's time, in January of 1970, if I remember my church history correct. He is not involved in this at all. It says, faithfully, your brethren, the first presidency, signed Hubie Brown and N. Eldon Tanner. Whose signature is missing from that, one wonders. Well, the guy yeah, who the couldn't guy sign his name at the time.
1: Right. The uh, I find it. I find it strange that President McKay... Is saying, "Look, we're not the ones being discriminatory; it's God who's being discriminatory. Take it up with Him." So, when I was doing the bump, 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 I was referring to your episode of Wrong Roads, where you said that's Elder Holland throwing God under the bus because here's David O. McKay throwing God under the bus.
2: Ah, uh, yes, that sound you just heard was—it's uh, actually Hubie Brown, though those 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 um, those rascals. Uh, Hugh B. Brown and N. Eldon Tanner giving a first presidency letter not signed by the president of the church. Now, we understand why he could not sign it. And, yes, there was a lot of confusion that was going on because of Hugh B. Brown and things that he was saying and being quoted as saying uh, in the press around this time. We won't go into that. But, yeah, there's no signature of President McKay here. So they're going to quote him. Oh, oh, oh. And this is actually, I remember reading in Lester Bush's article they're actually quoting David McK- oh, McKay from 1947 and I think it was personal correspondence.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny he when he was they even use the president as of the a church. Official.
2: What's that? It was this is a quote from 47 before President McKay became president, which I think was in 1950.
1: Yeah. It's strange when the church uses things as official and when the church goes like, well that wasn't in an official place, so that doesn't count. It, it seems to blend quite a bit, doesn't it? If it supports us now,
2: it's official. It doesn't make any difference, the source. Yeah. Maven.
3: Yeah. I just wanted to jump in that this is the tact that the church like has used for uh, anything that's unpopular or that makes the church look bad. And so... Um, I was just saying in the chat, like, this is something that's still being said uh, about women, you know, especially when you're talking about equality and and feminism in the church, or just uh, pointing out anything, any inequality there, is that, you know, this is is what God wanted, and this is what God said. So, like, oh, well, and it's the same with the LGBTQ issues as well. This is kind of the tack that, like, Jacob Hansen and others like him take, which is just like, look, it's not, we're not being bigoted. This is what, this is what God said. So it's kind of, it just seems like the the thing to do when the church is looking bigoted and bad. Um, and just, uh, yeah, it always throws God under the bus until it gets to the point that it's really bad. I, I really feel like someday in the future, um, maybe when women also have the priesthood, it'll, they'll be doing the same things. Well, you know, it, Women didn't have it before, but it, it wasn't a commandment, it wasn't a doctrine, it was just kind of practice. They just didn't really need it or you know, something like that. They'll always mm-hmm. have BS excuses for it. But that's it. President Hinckley said pattern. the women
1: have never women aren't asking for it.
3: <laughs> yep. And then they did.
1: <laughs> and then they yep. did, and they still didn't get it.
3: <laughs> and then we were told no <laughs> quite strongly. Yep. It does yep. strike me and in that reading was, this. One of the things, oh great, Maven. Like oh, I just say, like when they say no, it's just it's um you're um asking for things above your station you know stay back get back in your lane so anyway Mm. and that's what happened basically with jane manning james as she was trying to get sealed to her husband in the temple so we're not talking about the priesthood here but just the the ability to you know have an eternal marriage relationship um yeah so anyway
4: Mm.
3: carry on
2: (laughs) thanks maven as she reads this it strikes me that this is evidence that the leaders of the church are in direct contact with God because God only tells them what they already believe.
1: Yeah. And suddenly God takes all the theories off the table. Now they don't want to, they don't want to say that, huh?
2: No, just, just a hint. It goes back into the beginning with God. So if you got a problem, don't blame us. You need to take it up with God.
1: Yeah. Poor, poor, poor souls. All right. So, uh, maven, Ble- oh, I think we lost her, but let me see.
2: So we've got it says, David, hey, I saw you just what? came
1: back in. Um, is there a way to play the Elder Oaks uh, videos where I can play them here? Let me get it. I can do it actually. Let's do this.
2: Bill is amazing this way.
1: All right. So He's we're going to play. Let me put this up and we'll play the first one here. This is Elder Oaks. And I just want to set this up before it comes on. Um, Elder Oaks at the B1 celebration, um, he uh, is addressing the celebration of the 1978 priesthood revelation. And um, he is uh, says some things. And I remember when I watched it at the time, I was really caught off guard by what he said. And it struck me. I knew then what he was trying to get across. And I thought it was deeply deceptive. And I thought tonight would be a great chance as we go through this history to see how he's trying to reconcile all the stuff we covered before with the church's current stance from the 2013 gospel topic essay. And so hopefully.
2: Right. And so this is June of 2018. It's just five years ago.
1: Did that, did that sound by the way?
2: I heard it. It was a bit faint.
1: Okay. Let me see if I can turn it up. Mm, I think that's as loud as I'm going to be able to make it. So here we go.
4: I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them.
1: So Elder Oaks says, I studied the reasons, the valiancy, the curses. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel the confirmation of the truth of any, any of them. And it strikes me, RFM, that Elder Oaks at the time was just a lay member of the church. He wasn't uh, an apostle. He wasn't uh, in the first presidency. What he's saying is that he knew better than all of the men that were, because all 15 of those men had testified that this was the doctrine of the church and given via commandment of God, So Oak seems to be ahead of all the other prophet seers, and revelators when he's not a prophet, seer, or revelator. Hmm.
2: That's really an interesting observation you have there. This is why I love talking about things with you, Bill, because you have these insights that totally escape me, and this is one of them. This is a good example of one. I would have looked at this and said, yeah, this is the way he's presenting it now, but these reasons were being given by the people that you've already quoted, including Joseph Fielding Smith, including Bruce R. McConkie, the scriptorians of the church, the people who more than any other single person spoke the doctrine of the church. And what he's saying is, I was smarter than all of them. I knew way in advance that these reasons that were being given by them were not from God. I couldn't get a spiritual confirmation of them. So I understood that uh, those were not necessarily true. And yet, he'll go on to say a few other things, won't he, Bill? Yeah. Because what do you do Um, with this knowledge when you pray to God for confirmation of the reasons being given, and you got nothing? What do you do with that?
1: Yeah, and, and what does it matter that a lay member of the church who later becomes a leader didn't have a testimony of the thing that everyone in the church almost, and all of the leadership Had if we go back in time from Brigham Brigham Young, when we go to the very beginning of this podcast episode, and all the documentation we put up on the screen from Brigham Young on through to the 1978 revelation, all the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, generation after generation after generation for 125 years practically knew that this was the doctrine of the church, and some lay member. That is works in law named uh, Dallin Oaks. He's sure, like like Lester Bush, he's sure this isn't true. Like the Udall family in politics, they knew it wasn't true. So there's a handful of people. Elder Oaks is in this far minority of people who is running counter to the brethren. It seems strange to me that by telling you what he by telling you that he didn't get a confirmation of the truth of those theories, he is in effect telling you that you can't trust any of the leaders' confirmation about doctrines prior to him.
2: See, that is the point that now you've reiterated, and it's such a good point. And I don't want it to be lost. Because I look at this and I see President Oaks pandering to the audience. It's 2018. This is history. Everybody who is involved in it has since gone the way of all flesh, and now he can present himself as the enlightened one. He understood. He knew what the truth was. And yet he'll go on to say, but I went along with it anyway.
1: So again, I I know I'm reiterating kind of kicking a dead horse here, but uh, maybe not so much this one, but it seems to show that Alvin Dyer didn't understand what truth was. Seems to indicate that Marky Peterson doesn't understand what truth is. Seems to indicate that the first presidency in 1949 didn't know what truth was. They weren't able to discern Including David O.
2: McKay, he is a big name in Mormon history leadership.
1: Yeah. Um, George F. Richards, an apostle in 1947, seems unable to discern truth. Harold B. Lee seems unable to discern truth. George Albert Smith, J. Reuben Clark, and David O. McKay seem unable to discern truth. Orson Hyde seems unable to discern truth. Brigham Young seems unable to discern truth. Maybe. We'll get to a quote here that I think, I think Dallin Oaks is trying to split hairs, but it seems as though all of the leaders of the church prior to 1978 were unable to tell the truth between doctrine and air. Yeah. And that
2: sound you just heard over and over again was all prior church leaders being thrown under the bus by
1: Dallin Oaks. Yeah. Okay. So now let's go to the, uh, to the next one here. Let me. And this but will play just the full. He's getting fo- warmed up. He's just getting yeah, this warmed will play up
2: because the- pretty soon he's going to throw God
1: under the bus, too. He is. Um, this is the longer version. This plays what we already heard, but it gives context to what he says immediately following.
4: I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them as part of my prayerful study i learned that in general the lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants
1: so what he's saying there if i i don't know if there's any other way to interpret this he seems to be saying that The ban itself is from God. It's the commandments and directions that he gives to his children. But the theories, the Lord rarely gives reasons for those commandments and directions. So he seems to be telling the entire church that the church's formal position on the priesthood ban is that God actually did, in some way, curse people of color and prohibited them from having the priesthood until 1978, and that only the theories of valiancy and and, and a connection to Cain and Ham, those are the things that we're disavowing. And hence, it really reduces sort of the message of that gospel topic essay, once you understand that the church is holding to a position where they don't quite give up the thing that everyone thought they did.
2: Mm, right. And he'll be more, even more explicit than this at other points in his talk. But the basic thrust of what he's saying is, is that past church leaders and presidents got it completely wrong when it came to the reasons for the ban, but they were totally spot on with the ban itself. You can trust that. You can take yeah. that to the bank, Bill Real,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And then let's, uh, let's play the next one. And this one I thought was interesting because this leads right into some of the thoughts that you, uh, you came up with. So let me, let me put it up on the screen here.
4: I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple.
1: And actually this is the one just before. Um, So in this one, And I've seen this happen about a half dozen times in the last 10 years where the church points to a prophecy given by Brigham Young, where Brigham says there will be a moment in time in the future where people of color who were cursed, according to the priesthood, will be able to then receive the priesthood. And all of the church leaders and Elder Oaks right here, all the church leaders get up and celebrate it like it's a fulfilled prophecy Brigham Young promised someday that they would get the priesthood, and they have it, and now we have a fulfilled prophecy by Brigham Young. But what the church does is it includes this prophecy with lots of ellipses, and I think it's interesting when we actually look at the prophecy itself. So for instance, in the ensign, look at how they word this. That time will come when they, black members of the church, will come and have the privilege of all. We have the privilege and more. But then when you read the whole context of this until the lost of the posterity of Abel have received the priesthood until the redemption of the oh, earth or until the last Oh sorry till the last sorry. of the posterity yeah. of Abel have received the priesthood so until all the caucasians have received the priesthood and then until the redemption of the earth so this is after the millennium when the when the earth becomes a sea of glass becomes its own seer stone essentially and the earth is redeemed for, uh, in its paradisical glory, right? Paradisiacal. Yeah.
2: And Abel, and, I think, is A-B-E-L, but why quibble?
1: Yeah. And then it says, until the residue of the posterity of Michael. So here we have some Adam God. Posterity of Michael and his wife receive the blessings. They are the true eternal principles the Lord Almighty has ordained. And who can help it? Men cannot. That time will come when they will have the privilege of all who we have the privilege of and more. So they always reduce the prophecy to something that can be sort of self fulfilling, but really by them giving the priesthood in 78, instead of waiting until after the resurrection and the earth is changed, they actually cause the prophecy to be a failed prophecy.
2: Yeah. Ryan asks, so the second coming happened in 1978. No, Ryan,
1: actually the end of the millennium happened in 1978. And the earth was changed and we didn't even notice it. And it would be bad enough if it was just this, but it's not just this, Mm -hmm. Journal of Discourses. See, I thought this was something Brigham Young said one time on the record. He actually says it four times. If a prophet says something four times as a prophecy, you should be able to bet your ass on it. Brigham Young says when all the other children of Adam have had the privilege of receiving the priesthood and coming into the kingdom of God and of being redeemed from the four quarters of the earth. So the, the, uh, the gathering of Israel, right. And have received their resurrection from the dead. Then it will be time enough to remove the curse from Cain and his posterity. Then in another occasion, until all the descendants of Adam have received the promises thereof and enjoy the blessings of the priesthood and the keys thereof, until the last ones of the residue of Adam's children are brought up to that favorable position, the children of Cain cannot receive the first ordinances of the priesthood. They were the first that were cursed, and they will be the last from whom the curse will be removed. And then our fourth time, Journal of Discourses, why are so many of the inhabitants of the earth cursed with a sin of blackness? Skin it comes in cons. What's that? I'm
2: imagining the original was skin.
1: Oh yes. Uh, with a Well, it could be a sin, their sin, whatever their sin was that caused it, but maybe. Okay. I, I copied these from a website that was putting the quotes out. Okay. There, so I Continue. could be wrong. Um, they will go down to death. And when all the rest of the children have received their blessings of the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain, and they will then come up and possess the priesthood and receive, receive all the blessings that we are now entitled to. Brigham Young is crystal clear that the people of color having the priesthood ban removed had to take place after the millennium, after the resurrection of the dead, after the transformation of the earth into it. Say that again, the para- Paradisiacal paradisiacal glory, and by giving the uh, people of African ancestry the priesthood in 1978, they actually made Brigham Young a false prophet.
2: Hmm, Interesting point. The very, very interesting point. But yeah, this is part of the deception that goes along with this whole thing, is that now that Thank God, the priesthood ban has been lifted in 1978. What are we to do with these prophecies of Brigham Young as the president of the church, as the one with all the keys, who said multiple times that, yeah, the time will come when blacks will receive the priesthood, but it won't be until after after the resurrection. Okay, let's just put that as a minimum, all right? After the resurrection, after all of Adam's other children, the non-black children, have the chance to get the priesthood, right? Then the blacks will get the priesthood. Well, that didn't happen in 1978. There are still, you know, other of Adam's children, the non-black children still being born to get their chance, right? So what do we do with this? Well, apparently a decision was made by some clever person to say, well, okay, we'll quote selectively from one of these and then declare that this prophecy by Brigham Young has been fulfilled in the 1978 lifting of the priesthood ban when actually the prophecy was thwarted in that action. And that's the point you're making. They are saying by their action that actually Brigham Young was a false prophet, even though they're trying to portray him as a true prophet.
1: Yeah, and I also want to just note, this is a intentional deception. This is the leadership of the church instructing somebody to carefully word this in such a way as to give the opposite meaning of the actual original source.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: And, yeah. And this reminds me of, uh, of something like this. This, this idea that the church is
4: hiding something that which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody.
1: And, and then there's this one, which is why I don't think they're gonna take any questions on this. I
4: think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are the ones we avoid.
1: And there are answers to them, But it's not the answer they want, so those are the ones they avoid.
4: Right. By the way, sorry
2: to pop up out of the seat and come back uh, to pull a backyard professor on you, but um, a listener to the show did give me, very kindly, a complete set of Journal of Discourses. I thought I'd grab Volume 11 and double-check it. So it does say sin in the Journal of Discourses. I think it's right next to, hang on, my finger over on that side. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to see it. I'll just confirm that it does say sin in the journal of discourse. I'm still going to hold out the possibility that that was a mistranscription when it came to assembling the journal of discourses in the first place.
1: But if you understand Mormon history, well, everything's a mistranscription.
2: Yes. Okay. Very good. (laughs) Not to take away from this very important point that you're making, but Brigham Young is much abused in order to make him fit modern Mormonism.
1: Yeah. Yeah but a false prophet he is nonetheless when you look at what he said in its actual context in the full text. Remember, folks, when when we tell you that we're the ones telling you the truth, we're telling you the truth. Um, We're the ones being honest with you. We're the ones putting the sources on the screen. We're the ones that take out the ellipses and put the missing words in. Brigham Young said on four occasions what would happen. That's not what happened. So the church changed what he said into what happened. All right, here we go. Let's move on on.
2: Prophets aren't so bad after all, as long as you can mangle their words, Bill. Right,
1: right. Totally. So here's the last one, and this is the one that led to you finding something I think is incredible.
4: Institutionally, the church reacted swiftly to the revelation on the priesthood. Ordinations and temple recommends came Immediately. The reasons that had been given to try to explain the prior restrictions on members of African ancestry, even those previously voiced by revered church leaders, were promptly and publicly disavowed.
2: When I heard him say that, lo these five years ago, I thought, is he telling the truth on that last part Because I lived through it. Now, I was in Japan for two years, so it's a bit out of circulation. There's no internet and I wouldn't be using it if I were a good missionary anyway today. But, but I have done a little bit of study on the issue. I'm somewhat conversant and I'm not aware, I was not aware of any place that the church promptly and publicly disavowed the reasons. By the way, he keeps talking about these reasons. He never actually says what the heck the reasons are. He talks about them as if they are multitudinous. I could not get a spiritual confirmation of any of the reasons. Well, there's two of them. There's two reasons. There's the, the seed of Cain and there's the pre-mortal existence. And actually those go together in Mormon thought. They are inextricably linked because without Mormonism, you had other Christians, mainly slave owners or slave sympathizers, quoting from this this passage in the Bible and saying that these people are cursed and God said so, and therefore they're going to be a servant. So they can be slaves, right? And that's okay, according to the Bible, was their argument. Mormonism adds a new twist to it, which honors individual agency, because that other interpretation doesn't have anything to do with agency. There's no premortal existence from their theory uh, their viewpoint. And so you're just born this way and it sucks to be you, but that's what God said. So you got to live with it. But Mormonism now takes the premortal existence says they did something that was wrong there. They were not valiant or they did something else otherwise unspecified that caused them not to go with Satan and his angels to never get a body. They can get a body, but they, they just can't have the priesthood. So those two things go together. All I'm saying is that there's two reasons in Mormon thought, which is really one reason. But he acts like there are many reasons and a lot of reasons. I am not aware, getting back to my original point, I, I was not aware of any place where any church leader promptly and publicly disavowed the reasons that had been given, which is exactly what Elder Oak says. Now, he does not give any references. He does not say where this happened. And so the obvious place to look is in the famous talk that Bruce R. McConkie gave a couple of months later in August 1978, which I think was to the CES, the church educational system, in August, and that's usually when these are held, and I believe this is where he gave his talk. This is the one where he says, forget everything that I ever said, forget everything that Brigham Young ever said, new light, new knowledge has come into the world, and we need to get in line
1: with it, that talk. Did you want to say anything about that first, bell? I want to note something here, and then we'll put that up on the screen, but I, I just want to reiterate something you said, because I think it's important. There are these two theories, uh, Cain and Ham, and valiancy uh, in the pre-earth life. But think I try to think of it this way, that the mortal tabernacle of flesh from Cain or Ham forward was given a skin of darkness. The spirits that are sent into those mortal tabernacles that have a skin of darkness are those who were less valiant in the pre-earth life.
2: Right. Yeah. So you can keep track of them. Right. And say no priesthood for you.
1: Yep. And so here's the talk you were speaking of Bruce R. Mm -hmm. McConkie 1978 CES Religious Educator Symposium. And this is the pertinent section. You've read the whole thing. I've read the whole thing. This is the only section that you could even imagine comes close to what Elder Oaks is insinuating. And it's nowhere to be found.
2: Right. You know, I wanted to go back and read this talk and I did so last night in preparation for tonight's show because this is the obvious talk that he would be referring to. You know, he doesn't tell us what he's referring to. Now, in Bruce McConkie's talk, he talks about we have already called a black elder to go to a mission in Florida and a black sister to go to some other mission. So yeah, promptly, yep, priesthood, definitely callings even for black sisters who, by the way, could not go on missions prior to 1978. It wasn't an issue of, priesthood, but it was an issue of missionaries have to go to the temple to get their endowment of power prior to going on their mission. Sister missionaries, though they're sisters and would not be holding the priesthood if they're black, could not go to the temple, therefore they could not serve missions for the church. So it would be the first black sister missionary was called, and he talks about that. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie does in August of 1978. So that much I could see Elder Oaks' deriving from this talk, that there was prompt action, at least in those regards. Um, Once again, President Oaks is not part of this. He's president of BYU at the time, as he makes a point of saying in his address, right, in 1978. So he's not part of these decisions. He's not part of this. He doesn't know from the internal workings what's going on. So this is the best that I can come up with. And once again, it should not be obligatory on me to go and look for the sources that President Oaks is not citing in his talk, but this is as close as I can come. If anybody else knows of some other place where the church in an official capacity did come out and uh, discount or disavow those reasons, the curse of Cain or the pre-mortal neutrality and the war in heaven, if they did that, please let me know because I've tried to find it. Uh, Obviously there'd be a lot of material to go through in order to find it. I haven't found it. This is as close as it comes. And now you've got um, Elder McConkie saying that much. But like I said last night, I wanted to do due diligence and make sure I knew what the heck was in his talk before I came and made this statement that I'm going to make and that you've already made, Bill. So I read it last night and then I read it again, just to be sure. And I will say with some degree of confidence that nowhere in Bruce R. McConkie's talk does he even mention the reasons that were given for the priesthood ban, much less disavow them.
1: And and I'm going to, just lead a segue into the next piece we actually can know with some certainty that Bruce R. McConkie isn't disavowing the theories because
2: because two years later in April General Conference of 1980 he repeats it he repeats (laughs) the seed of Cain argument now he's not saying that the seed of Cain prevents black people from having the priesthood anymore what he's saying is Hey, guess what? The seed of Cain can now hold the priesthood. Yay, this is great stuff. Right. But it is great stuff, but he's still talking about the seed of Cain. So he's still promoting that same reason for why it was that black people could not hold the priesthood up until 1978. And we actually have that video clip, don't we? By the way, it's bracketed. What he's doing is he's giving a talk about the church and how great it is and how all these different wonderful things about it. Now he's looking to the future and he's going to talk about what I just told you he's going to talk about. But before that, he'll talk about temples and after that, he'll talk about something else. We wanted to play it with a fuller clip. It's about a minute long. It's not that long, but just to let you know that we're playing it for context to give the one before it and the one after it, but the one in the middle, and you'll know it when you hear it, is the one that we're aiming at tonight.
4: We see temples in great numbers dotting the earth so that those of every nation and kindred and tongue and people can receive the fullness of the ordinances of the house of the Lord and can qualify to live and reign as kings and priests on earth a thousand years. We see the seed of Cain, long denied that priestly power which makes men rulers over many kingdoms, Rise up and bless Abraham as their father.
1: So we can know that Bruce R. McConkie wasn't disavowing the theories in 1978 because he was repeating them in 1980.
2: (laughs) Bingo. Yeah, you can take the racism out of Mormonism, but it's harder to take the racism out of the Mormons.
1: (laughs) The seed of Cain, you know, thank God they get to get the priesthood now.
2: They're still the seed of Cain though. So yeah. not only is the church and by that, I'm just talking about the ones I can find. All right. And I think this was amazing that I even found this and this was some months ago. I found it. I can't even remember, but I was able to re-find it. So not only is the church, at least from what I can find its leaders, Bruce R McConkey who was the guy, he was the scriptorian who bestrode the earth, like a Colossus and everybody paid attention to him. He wrote all the books, including a book called Mormon Doctrine, and he's still with us late and soon in the Bible Dictionary and in the headings to all the different chapters in the Standard Works. But he said, yep, Seed of Cain, still alive and well. We still believe that. And it's great that the Seed of Cain can hold the priesthood now. But of course, in order to say that he has to still perpetuate the idea of the Seed of Cain.
1: And that they couldn't hold it before.
2: Right. And I don't know that anybody ever actually said it. Um, maybe they did. It seems like it would be an obvious thing to say is that, well, all those spirits in the pre mortal existence who got consigned to not having the priesthood and coming through this line, they all got born apparently and maybe died by 1978. 1978, the last of those guys passes away and boom, now the field is clear and black people can hold the priesthood again or for once.
1: Yeah. So when Elder Oaks says that they were that those theories were promptly and publicly disavowed, just like where he took Brigham Young's words and twisted them to say something they didn't, he seems to be taking Bruce R. McConkie's words and twisting them into something they weren't. And it also then adds one more person to our list. Bruce R. McConkie also seemed unable to discern truth, also seemed unable to know what God's will was, also seems to have. Failed at being a prophet seer and revelator in uh, being the voice of the Lord to us, uh, and so Elder Oaks is throwing everybody under the bus tonight. Um, I think
2: that I think that that is not a correct statement on his part, uh, Elder Oaks. If you've got something that you were referring to that I don't know about, please reach out. You can email me at Radio Free Mormon One. That's the number one at gmail dot com. I'd be happy to look at it and present it on the show. If I'm in error on this, and I would like to be correct, but it looks like when he says that the reasons were promptly and publicly disavowed, I think that's incorrect. In fact, my my research uh, has shown that the first time, to my knowledge, that the priest that the reasons for the priesthood ban were publicly disavowed was in 2007 by Elder Jeffrey Holland, and uh, it was on that PBS show, The Mormons. That was the first time where. I'm aware of that a public statement was made by a leader was made that could be construed as disavowing those reasons.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think the actual interview took place on March 4th, 2006. Okay. And then the program aired in 2007. And Elder Holland, in the first part of this Q&A, he's asked what he thinks about all that folklore. And he's sort of very ambiguous. So then the interviewer comes back and goes, what is the folklore quite specifically? And Elder Holland says, some of the folklore that you must be referring to are the suggestions. There were decisions made in the premortal councils where someone had not been decisive in their loyalty to a gospel plan or the procedures on earth or what was to unfold in mortality and that therefore the opportunity of immortality was compromised. It was something to do with the premortal councils. That's the part I must I'm sorry, that's the part that... Let me start over. It was something to do with the premortal councils. Uh, That's the part that must never be taught until anybody knows a lot more than I know. Problem was, it was taught by a lot of people saying it was doctrine of the church. We just don't know, Elder Holland says, in the historical context of the time, why it was practiced. So he also seems to be indicating that the ban itself is still from God. We just don't know in the historical context of the time why it was done.
2: Right, and he tries to as gently as he can throw the prior leaders under the bus. But in that part, in between the two highlighted sections where he says, I really don't know a lot of the details of those BS elder Holland. Of course, you know, the details of those. I know the details of those. Bill real knows the details of those you're older than both of us, or I should say you're older than either of us.
1: And he's no Dodo. He's gone to a good school. He's read some good books. Yes, and of course
2: he knows the details of these just as well as we do, and he's playing dumb, playing dumb all over the place and, you know, his usual shtick, but basically then going on to say, that's my principal concern is that we don't perpetuate explanations about things we don't know, okay? We don't pretend that something wasn't taught or practiced, wasn't pursued for whatever reason, well, okay, but I think we can be unequivocal and we can be declarative in our current literature in books that we reproduce, in teachings that go forward, whatever that from this time forward, from 1978 forward, we can make sure that nothing of that is declared. That may be where we still need to make sure that we're absolutely dutiful, that we put a careful eye or scrutiny, blah, blah, blah. He just obviously he's answering a question. It's a it's a difficult question for any church leader to have to address. And I know he's doing the best he can. He's probably doing better than I could if I were in his position. But he's using a lot of words to say very little, except, you know, those people, they had their own ideas. They were trying to do the best they could, those prior leaders of the church, and uh, they they just, they got it wrong, is basically what he's trying to say. They got it wrong. We don't know the reasons, and the reasons they gave were not correct, but this was still from God regardless.
1: If Elder Oaks and Elder Holland and all of the modern church leaders since 2000 and say six or since 2013 with the gospel topic essay, if they don't know the reasons, how do they know that the reasons that were given by past prophets, seers and revelators aren't true? Like how do they know those theories are not like, if those men knew by the power of the Holy ghost, that they were true and they're the official servants of the Lord as leaders of the church, and nobody's received a revelation that says those theories aren't true. We just created a gospel topic essay and have Elder Holland talking to PBS. Then how do these leaders know that those leaders were wrong? Other than it's convenient. Well,
2: I think it is possible uh, to know that certain answers are wrong without knowing what the correct answer is. As a general But that would have to come
1: by a revelation as well. Especially since it's in our theology in Abraham, Moses, the Book of Mormon, and Brigham Young said, seemed to be speaking as a prophet on at least some sort when he said it in 1852. Well,
2: just pushing back mildly, if there's something weird or some sound in your house in the middle of the night, and a potential explanation is that it's aliens who've landed and come in looking for M&Ms, or actually Reese's Pieces. M&Ms missed out on that one.
1: Yeah. They did, didn't they? It would be
2: possible to conclude that that explanation was wrong without knowing what the real answer is.
1: Yeah, but this situation seems entirely different. It seems like this got so uncomfortable that they chose to take a different position, but don't really give any reason for how they got there.
2: Right. And so I will say that Elder Holland, 2006, the interview happens, it's broadcast in 2007. But this made such a minor impact. By the way, it's not in General Conference. It's never been mentioned in General Conference. Any disavowals to my knowledge. Never mentioned in any public setting by a church leader. This is as close as it gets. And this is going to be broadcast in 2007, which is 29 years after the ban was lifted in 1978. And 29 years after President Oaks told us that the reasons for the ban were promptly disavowed and publicly, promptly and publicly disavowed. And the reason I think this made such a little ripple, what Elder Holland said in 2007, is because no less a professor at BYU than Randy Bott apparently did not get the memo as of 2012.
1: Yeah. Tell us what happened there, my friend.
2: Well, there's a, this Mormon guy who was running for president. And so there was this Mormon moment going on. And um,
1: we are the Mormons.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We got this whole campaign going on. And Mitt Romney is, you know, gaining steam. And everybody's wondering about this Mormon connection. And uh, reporters are trying to find out what's going on. And they, they keep uh, running into church PR people who aren't going to tell them diddly. And they keep being focused back to them. And everybody who works at BYU, I think a memo went out or something saying, look, don't talk to reporters, just refer them back to headquarters so that we can give them the unreal scoop. But Randy Bott, once again, not getting the memo, was approached by a reporter. Uh, was this the the Post? Maybe it was the Times. Anyway, it was a big newspaper and it became a big story. Because what Randy Bott, Professor Bott, does in 2012, is he sits down and he talks with him, and he tells them, The real story on why it is the church taught that blacks could not hold the priesthood prior to 1978. And it came across even cringier than a lot of other people have put it. But what he was telling was the truth as he understood it. And it was the truth as the church taught it. And um, did you want to read this, Bill? Is this from the
1: article? I don't necessarily have a need to read it. Just, I think just noting what happened that, that he had nothing to go on, but the, but the teachings up to his present moment, which is that people of color were cursed and he's only doing what a good Mormon does, which is being bold with the truth and telling people whether you like it or not, I'm sorry, but this is what God has done. And then he has to pay the price for it.
2: And a BYU professor who is extremely faithful. He's a religion professor and he's teaching these classes to the, the young, uh, BYU students all the time. If he had, if there had been a public statement by the brethren disavowing the prior theories, then Randy Bott would not have been teaching those prior theories. I'm, I'm virtually sure of it. If that had been done, he would never have said this, but the little statement that's made by Elder Holland several years before in a PBS two-part special was not sufficient to clue Randy bought in. So what he says is, and I think this is significant. I'll try and read it quickly. Is that okay, Bill? Please. So this is from the reporter, and this is what got published, and this is what scrambled the church. Because, damn it, this professor talked to the press, and he told them the truth. And nothing pisses off Mormon leadership, like a member telling the truth (laughs) so they went to DEFCON 1 but here's what he said and this is why they went to DEFCON 1 according to Mormon scriptures this is the reporter obviously the descendants of Cain who killed his brother Abel were black one of Cain's descendants was Egyptus a woman Mormons believe was the namesake of Egypt she married Ham see there's that theory she married Ham whose descendants were themselves cursed and in the view of many Mormons barred from the priesthood by his father Noah but Randy Bott points to the Mormon holy text, the book of Abraham, as suggesting that all of the the descendants of Ham and Egyptus were thus black and barred from the priesthood. That's that uh, Abraham chapter one, verse 27 we talked about. God has always been discriminatory. Now, that's a quote from Randy Bott. God has always been discriminatory when it comes to whom he grants the authority of the priesthood, says Bott, the BYU theologian. By the way, there he's echoing a prior first presidency statement. He quotes Mormon scripture that states that the Lord gives to people all that he seeth fit. Professor Bott compares blacks with a young child prematurely asking for the keys to her father's car, and explains that similarly until 1978, the Lord determined that blacks were not yet ready for the priesthood. Mm, Cringe factor 10. What is discrimination? Bott asks. I I think that is keeping something from somebody that would be a benefit for them, right? But what if it wouldn't have been a benefit to them, Bot says that the denial of the priesthood to blacks on earth, although not in the afterlife, hmm, protected them from the lowest rungs of hell reserved for people who abuse their priesthood powers. You couldn't fall off the top of the ladder, he said, because you weren't on the top of the ladder. So in reality, the blacks not having the priesthood was the greatest blessing God could give them.
1: That's a backhanded compliment, right? Like, you well, yeah. Why can't God
2: bless the rest of us that way? I mean, why does he stick yeah. us on the top of the ladder so he can fall off?
1: Bot is only teaching what you and I grew up with in our Sunday schools. He's only teaching what he learned from his priesthood leaders. He's only teaching what he learned studying these doctrines of the church. He wasn't a lazy learner. He He understood the doctrines of the church, and he never had anybody tell him that those things aren't true anymore.
2: Right. And the thing about the keys to the car may have been something he came up with himself. I'm not sure I had encountered that before this, but obviously it makes absolute sense from that perspective, right? You've got to justify what, for all intents and purposes, is a discriminatory practice. So you turn around and make it a blessing instead of discrimination.
1: Yeah, everybody who doesn't get the thing, it's a blessing for them. So
2: the church, this gets published, they go to DEFCON 1, they issue their own statement. Randy Bott is out of there at the end of the semester to go on a... What was it? A, uh, it was like a, a pre- like early
1: retirement. Wasn't it, was it like
2: a pre-planned leave of absence or something like
1: yeah. that? He oh, retracts yeah, his statement first. He accuses the reporter of misconstruing his comments. And then like a week after that retraction happens, then he's removed from his position.
2: hmm And this is from what the Salt Lake city official statement, 29 February. Oh, a leap year 2012. So what they say, this is very important. This is, so this is the church's official statement when they went to DEFCON 1 over the Randy Bott incident. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. The Book of Mormon states black and white bond and free male and female, all are alike unto God. But of course, that that particular passage of the Book of Mormon was not in effect until 1978. This is the church's official teaching. People of all races have always been welcomed and baptized into the church since its beginning. In fact, by the end of his life in 1844, Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, opposed slavery. Well, that's not really the issue, is it? The issue is priesthood. During also, this... he
1: didn't quite oppose slavery either.
2: Yeah, there were. Yeah, that's true. During this time. um. Oh, but it says by the end of his life.
1: Yeah, but we've got that messenger and advocate and other things that he did.
2: So I know, but by the end of his life, he'd gone back on course with his presidential campaign. It must be
1: true, they say so.
2: Yeah. Well, they're they're making it they're they're using the words carefully so that it is true. Mm. During this time, some black males were ordained to the priesthood. At some point, the church stopped ordaining male members of African descent, although there were a few exceptions. Hmm. It is not known precisely why, how, or when this restriction began in the church. Now, remember, this is the church's official statement. They don't know why, how, or when, and that's BS. They know all those things. And that is another one of the the points that's made in Lester Bush's 1973 dialogue article, is that this idea, we can't pinpoint it. Yeah, we can. It was Brigham Young, and it started in 1949, and it was uh, coalesced in, uh, I said, 1849. 1849. 1849, and coalesced in 1852. Okay, but... Um, they're saying it is not known precisely why Brigham Young how racism or when 1849 this restriction began in the church but it has ended church leaders sought divine guidance regarding the issue and more than 3 decades ago extended the it's a long long time ago guys extended the priesthood to all worthy male members the church immediately began ordaining members to priesthood offices wherever they attended throughout the world the church unequivocally condemns racism which means it condemns itself for the majority of its history including any and all past racism by individuals both inside and outside the church. Okay. Inside the church. top. But the ban is still from God. Right. In Hmm. 2006, then church president Gordon B Hinckley declared that no man who makes disparaging comments concerning those of another race can consider himself a true disciple of Christ.
1: Hold on a minute. That would mean all those past leaders were not true disciples of Christ. Mm -hmm.
2: And especially Brigham Young. Hmm. I mean, doesn't that compromise the, the church's truth dis- claims? Yeah, it does. Because nobody did disparaging comments against black people like Brigham Young.
1: Yeah. So if he wasn't a true disciple of Jesus Christ, how could he be a true prophet of the true and living church with which the Lord is well-pleased?
2: Yeah, they they cut themselves off from Brigham Young with that if you look at it too closely. Mm. Nor can he consider himself to be in harmony with the teachings of the church. Let us all recognize that each of us is a son or daughter of our Father in heaven, who loves all of his children, period, end of quote, from Gordon B. Hinckley, going on with the church official statement recently. The church has also made the following statement on this subject. The origins of priesthood availability are not entirely clear. I mean, we're just 15 prophecies and revelators. We don't know Deadly.
1: We laid it out in an hour and a half here. (laughs) Yes.
2: Some explanations with respect to this matter were made in the absence of direct revelation and references to these explanations are sometimes cited in publications. These previous Personal statements do not represent church doctrine. Now, I don't know what that's from, but it's recently as of 2012. The statement it says itself says recently the church has also made the following statement on this subject. I will bet you $5 Bill Real, that if President Oaks were correct, that right after the 1978 revelation, publicly and promptly the church disavowed those theories, It would have been cited in the statement. My Mm. expectation is they are not cited in the statement from 2012 because they don't exist.
1: Liars, liars, liars. So then we end up with the... uh, By the
2: way, SEMC, that was Bill Real talking, not me, just so you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. They don't, they don't, don't worry. They don't excommunicate people who have received the second anointing. Ask Tom Phillips. So, uh, Race and the Priesthood, this is the 2013 Gospel Topic Essay. The year
2: after the bot fiasco, now they're going to actually, for the first time in an official church publication that I know of. This is pretty prompt. They're going to try, and yeah, but not from 1978, from 2012. Yes, exactly. They're going to say they disavow past theories without, once again, talking about what those theories are, I believe. Do they talk about it? This yeah, is or what that they reflect in righteous yep. actions
1: in a pre-mortal life. Go ahead. Today the church disavows the, by the way, when I told you this on the phone today when when this got published in 2013, I think that's when it was.
2: It was December. okay, of
1: 2012 or 2013. 13. Okay, when they published it and it said today, they literally meant today, today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin, is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in the premortal life, that mixed-race marriages are sin, or that black, that blacks or people of any race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. But that also means they condemn the book of Moses. They condemn the book of Abraham. They condemn all the prophets who have spoken. They condemn... Uh, Uh, did I say the book of Mormon with the Nephites and Lamanites Mm -hmm. and that whole thing, like this becomes, and, and by the way, notice how carefully worded this is. They're right. They do not talk about the ban itself, only the theories. The ban is still from God and the church leaders have lied and weaseled their way into trying to get everyone to, to not quite understand what they're teaching. They're pretty ambiguous.
2: Right. And I I want to give them as much credit as I can for at least talking about a theory. They don't mention the seed of Cain, but they do mention that uh, reflected unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life. So at least they get pretty close to it there. This is the the closest they've come to actually disavowing the um, the priesthood, uh, excuse me, the pre-mortal existence explanation for blacks not having the priesthood. But then what they did was they put it in an essay that they buried on the church website, specifically according to Elder Snow, former church historian, so that people would not find it. Do you remember Elder Snow saying that, Bill?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was in an interview with uh, Trib Talk, Salt Lake Tribune, uh, uh, Peggy Fletcher Stack, and I don't remember the other gentleman's name, but the podcast that they do, Mm -hmm. they interviewed Stephen Snow, and he... Uh, responded about it being multiple clicks away. Yeah.
2: Right. Like I used to say, three clicks deep, it's buried three clicks deep. This was written for it not to be read. This was placed in a, a situation so that you could not find it. You should not find it. And you're only going to find it. Once again, I've said this before, I would have people coming to me and contacting me and saying, I can't find these essays on the church website. How do I find them? And I would walk them through how you can find it. And that's, that's how easily accessible these are. They were never promoted on the front page, the home page of the church. They were stuck there without any fanfare so that people would not find them. And it is only in that location that I'm aware of, Bill, that the church in an official capacity now has disavowed prior theories.
1: They're as honest as they know how to be. This was not quite that prompt. Um, I just—I anyway, sh-
2: I, I might have to take that back, and I apologize for this. Can you? Did they? Did they disavow the prior theories in the official church statement in February of two thousand and twelve, pursuant to the Randy bot?
1: Says church leaders sought divine. Gu- um... I don't think it does. Church
2: leaders sought divine guidance regarding the issue. And more than three decades ago, stated the priesthood church. Okay. Although there is not, it is not known precisely why, how, or when this restriction began in the church, but it has ended during this time. So not
1: knowing ended, why is not the same as saying the past wise are wrong.
2: Okay. And I'm scanning it. Uh, if anybody out there in the audience sees it, let me know, but I'm not seeing a disavowal mm-hmm. of the reasons even in this official church statement from 2012, February
1: 29. It does say at the bottom part, some explanations with respect to this matter were made in the absence of direct revelation, and references to these explanations are sometimes cited in publications. These previous personal statements do not represent church doctrine, but they did. They were said in all kinds of official doctrinal places, general conference, first presidency letters, so they were church doctrine. They're just not now, which means how in the hell do we know when a prophet, seer, and revelator is telling the truth when when he says something, all the other 14 top leaders believe him, they all repeat it, and all the members believe it's true as well. It really puts a deep flaw in our ability to trust these men as being having any real ability to discern truth. Especially when the 1949 First Presidency statement says
2: it's doctrine. It's not a matter of policy. This is the doctrine of the church and has been from the first day the church was organized up until the present.
1: Yeah, and I also want to note, this idea of valiancy in the pre-earth life is still a doctrine in the church. All you have to do is go to a youth conference and watch, uh, or or some sort of uh, youth fireside or anything where a leader of the church is, and the top 15 on numerous occasions have told the youth, that they have been reserved for the last days, that they are the very elect of God's Mm -hmm. chosen spirits. Right. right. So there's still the teaching that you did something prior to your birth here that reserved you for the last part of the last dispensation. And you are better than all the people who came before you. Mm -hmm. So that, that isn't quite like they're disavowing it in terms of people of color in the race ban. But the idea that what you did before this life is what caused you to be in the station that you are in this life is still an absolutely core piece of Mormon theology.
2: Hey, Bill, can I ask you a question? If you put your TBM hat back on, your bishop's hat? Please. I want to ask you a question. Which has more authority? A 2012 Salt Lake City official statement that's not signed that I can tell. But that does come from the church, whatever that means. We're a nineteen forty-nine statement that's signed by all three members of the first presidency.
1: Okay, what was the first say the first one again?
2: 2012 official church statement. Not signed, mm-hmm. at least not in that slide. It's put no out by I, the yeah. press, the PR department. Obviously, it was signed off on by the leaders of the church, one would think. But does that have more authority, an unsigned statement by the church in 2012 or a signed first presidency statement in 1949? They obviously conflict, which is its own problem. But I was just wondering, which you would think would have the most authority, because I know what I would go with.
1: I would go with the one that's signed by the top leadership of the church.
2: Absolutely. First presidency statements used to mean something back 40 years ago.
1: Yeah. And if you remember when Hinckley went on 60 Minutes or one of those interviews that he did in the midst of doing a bunch of them for five years, um, when he said the whole thing about uh, the couplet and that we don't know that we teach it anymore, we don't emphasize it. If you remember right, he gets up at the next general conference and says something along the lines of, Trust me, I know what the church teaches. Um, right. And so there's sort of this idea that what the church does through the newsroom. And what the church does on Sunday Mormonism and in official channels is two very different Mormonisms. For instance, we can show lots of moments where the church still teaches that you will have worlds that you are given to populate with people that you get a planet. Um, And now in the newsroom says you don't get a planet. Church says it knows where the Garden of Eden is. Church newsroom says it doesn't know where the Garden of Eden is. Um, There seems to be two two kind of profiles of Mormonism. One is the one they want the general public to know Mm -hmm. and the one that they hope that the older member hangs on to.
2: Yes. Yeah. And this is a problem that's dogged the church at least since the whole polygamy problem and why nobody believed that uh, president Woodruff was serious in 1890 when he issued the manifesto. And guess what? They were right. Yeah, He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't serious.
1: Mormonism has been playing this game since its inception. Joseph Smith with polygamy. Like the, the church does this thing and its leaders do this thing where they constantly talk out both sides of their mouth.
2: And the problem with that is, is that it puts the membership in a place where they can never trust whatever the church leader is saying. Are they saying it because it's true? Or are they speaking to me? Or are they saying it because they want everybody else to think? That this is what the church teaches,
1: yeah. And Sometimes I'm going to just it's say it's the phone easy to
2: make that distinction, right? Like when when totally uh, President Hinckley is on Larry King or whatever it was, sixty minutes or whatever, wherever he made that statement. Um, yeah, obviously he's on a public news show, so he's talking to the world. It it I used to have this mindset too, and I don't think did it ever occur to me that I wish that I had a prophet. Who was convinced enough that what we believed was true that he would just tell it like it is?
1: A Benadai. Why? Why not be an A Benedi and just stand up and say it like it is and and risk whatever that is that you have to risk? Well, look what happened to a <laughs> Yeah, these guys fly in first uh, first class flights and people stand up when they enter the room and they get everything paid for them. They do not have the
2: courage of their convictions. And I'm going to say that right to the camera because I'm speaking to all members of the First Presidency right now and the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the Seventy. The way you act convinces me that you do not have the courage of your convictions. You're always playing hide the ball. You're always trying to talk out of both sides of your mouth. And my perception, my position is that if you did have the courage of your convictions, you would just tell the truth and let the consequence follow. I think there's a song about that, but you would just tell the truth. I'm not saying you have to go out and spill the beans on the second anointing, okay? Because obvious, or, or what happens in the temple. There are some things that in Mormon theology are sacred, and we're not going to talk about those. That's fine. Just say that, okay? But don't lie about it don't give false information because you think that what you really believe will be embarrassing to you in some way or that people will look at you strangely the way people the reason people look at you strangely and askance is when you get caught not being honest with them whatever you believe no, no matter how strange it is okay maybe there's some fringe things that might be beyond this discussion but no matter what you believe People respect someone who is honest about what they believe and just says it like it is. What they don't respect is someone who believes something, but tries to put one over on you, making you think that they don't really believe it.
1: Amen. Amen. Let's uh, let's do the phone call portion of the show. We'll take a few phone calls. The number is 662-667-6667. I can tell you one person that uh, will not be calling tonight.
2: The, uh, uh, is his
1: first name James his first name is James his last name is Raphael and I'll tell you why he's not going to be calling tonight now I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying he like he's attracted to children I'm not saying he's attracted to children but I separate? am saying I am saying and we'll show here I am saying that he seems to have defended those who are attracted to children in the email correspondence with me and James back and forth, where James is pointing out these ridiculous, stupid, scratching the bottom of the barrel, that what he sees is deceptions by me, he says, because he's frustrated and he wants me to know like how, how long he's been trying to get through to me. He says, I called the first time on episode 98. Yes, that was actually the first time I called. Go listen back. You forced me into a yes or no answer to your question about Joseph Smith in 14 year old marriages being right or wrong, by the way, completely unrelated to, and not on the topic of the show about properties and stuff. In other words, he goes off topic and I hold him accountable to that. I go off topic and I get away with it. Right? So the other day I'm in Facebook and I'm cleaning out my spam messages. So not only do you have a regular Facebook message folder, you have a message request folder, and then you also have a spam folder. Well, I have lots of messages in my spam folder that are written to me by people that aren't spam, and I'm just now starting to go through them. One of them I find is the person who claims that they're the person who also had the same conversation with me. You profess to be enlightened and awakened, and yet you then vilify men having sex with girls who have attained the age of consent, which is as low as 14 in Germany and Italy, 15 in France. These are countries which are more enlightened and awakened than America. Because Europe you can reco- judge
2: how awakened and enlightened a country is by how low their age of consent is. Go ahead.
1: Right. So let's like <laughs> let's keep going. Like is 9 okay? Is 8 all right? Like these are countries which are more enlightened and awakened than America. Europe recognizes that evolution and biology has made human bodies ready to procreate by that age. That's the discerning factor is whether is whether a, a young woman can get pregnant and deliver a child. Therefore, an enlightened society does not impose artificial, socially constructed mores on the sexual relationship, but Bill Real does. You would come across as very unawakened in modern-day Europe, but you still probably think America knows better. What a conservative prude. And you challenged me to call in and debate this with you. I agreed, and you blinked. You gutless toad. So... I'm just going to say, when I wrote James Raphael back and said, I just put these two data points together and figured out who you are and what you believe, and I included you guys on the message, he hasn't written me back yet. James Raphael is nowhere to be found. I now understood. Because at the time when he was poking about how we file our taxes and trying to call me out on lies, it was, it seemed to me like, this guy's really stretching. He's really trying. He's got some vendetta. He's got something. And he finally made it clear to me what his vendetta was. And now that I've shown him, I figured it out. I highly doubt we're going to hear much of James. Cause James, if you call again, we're going to talk about all of this before we ever get to what you want to talk about on the show.
3: I also want to jump in and say that he's, he's categorically wrong here. Uh, just because a girl has started menstruation at whatever age that may be. that does not actually mean that her body is physically capable and ready to have children um and It is known that in in some places where uh or this i mean this can happen it doesn't matter where they live, but any young bride that's that's too young to be giving birth uh can have a, i mean there's a myriad of problems that pregnancy can cause on a young body that's really not yet prepared for it. Um, but there was one, and I can't remember where this, went, but it was starting to be really common that just, again, because of their young age, giving birth would just, um, would, would tear them enough that they were, they lost continence. They weren't able to really control their bat- bladder anymore, that is something that requires surgery to fix and is a lot more common in a, a a very, very young mother. And I do also just want to point out that the youngest mother on historical record um, it was five years old. So um, really? I just want to point that out. I th- yeah. Yeah. I think it was, uh, I'm thinking it was Venezuela. It was a, it was a South American country and uh, yes, and they did not, they did, it was not aborted. So I, she did have that. And it was basically raised, it was a little boy basically raised as her brother, but yeah, five years old, definitely too young. And so I just wanted to point that out. And then of course it has been pointed out multiple times. So it isn't just physically, that's something that a lot of people yeah. want to point out, but also definitely mentally. Uh, teenagers, even if they are capable of having children, are still not mentally uh, fully finished, developed. And the studies, I, th- I think, show quite strongly that the younger a mother is, the more of a struggle it is in raising a child as far as like the patients needed. Uh, and older mothers generally are better mothers, generally speaking the more they have a chance to to be developed not just physically but also mentally so i just wanted to point that out james Raphael's is really incorrect and again just because biology says that or shows that uh, a a girl is capable of of giving birth it does not mean that that's a good thing or that it's fine so
1: and i'm getting yeah. reminded tonight i mean if somebody were 40 years old let's say 30 years old Capable of having children, but they were just less valiant in the pre Earth life. And given the challenge of a physical handicap or mental handicap, like if somebody's mentally handicapped, that just because they can produce children doesn't mean they should, doesn't mean that we should allow anyone to go ahead and convince them to marry. James Raphael's logic is completely absurd here on a whole host of fronts. And so, James, I'm really sorry that uh, the world isn't built the way you wish it was but it's not. And I also know,
3: and I'm glad. Yeah.
1: I want to note one last thing. I have a, I have a serious worry that when our country and other places in the world created laws that allowed 14 year olds and 15 year olds to be married, I highly doubt that was really designed to allow a 14 year old and a 15 year old to marry or a 14 year old and a 17 year old to marry. It seems like laws on the books are put in place by the powerful men who want to abuse those rules. And for men who want to have access to young children, having a law put on the books that allows that seems to be a way to get what you want. And I don't, I just don't think it was about kids in the beginning, two kids. I just don't think it was, it doesn't make any sense to me. Cause I think in those situations, the society resolves that in a relatively healthy way. Anyway, taking the kids into one of the parents' homes.
2: Attracting it seems waiting. like
1: having, what's
2: that? a waiting.
1: Yeah, it seems like having a law where someone can marry 14-year-olds is designed to allow grown-ass adults to marry 14-year-olds.
2: Can I say a couple things here? Please. Uh, first off, when he says uh Germany age of consent is low as 14, Italy. Oh, Italy and Germany 14, France 15, that's what he's saying. You know, in the US, and I'm sure in my, I know in my state and I'm sure in your state as well, there is an age of consent. Okay? But There are certain qualifications that go along with that. In other words, it's still possible to commit a crime, even though I'm just going to say a girl, because it's usually a girl, has reached the age of consent, depending upon different factors. If you have some kind of authority over her, you're a teacher or something like that. Yeah, there's still all sorts of ways you can run afoul of this. And I didn't do an in-depth study of Germany and Italy and France, but I did look at Germany and France and I found that those are the ages of consent there. But once again, there are lots of caveats to that. It's not something where you can just go in there and just, just marry them willy nilly. There have to be certain things that are accounted for because you can run afoul of these. And Joseph Smith was certainly using his authority and influence. Over these girls in order to get them to marry him I don't think that can really be debated that he's using his authority as their spiritual and religious leader, the prophet of God, who opens and shuts the doors of heaven to them, depending upon how they respond to his proposals. I do think the last thing i'm going to say that's very concerning to me and which I don't think I I had appreciated as much before is how the example of Joseph Smith can be used by members of the church who do have these predilections toward children to justify their feelings and, God forbid, their actions.
1: Mm. Great point. All right, I'll take that off. I don't anticipate James will be bothering us anymore during our show, so there's that. James at at 14.
3: Give him time, He's because he took his time before, so he might just be, you know...
1: When he He'll does, you back. I'll He'll have this some slide lies ready. That told. What's that RFM? He'll get you
2: back. He'll find some lies that you've told. Yeah. And let me just go ahead and say that generally as, as a general course, I am in favor of nuance, but there are some situations where nuance is not a good thing. And this is one of them.
1: Yeah. Probably not this. <laughs> no nuance there. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh let's go to the Hi. phone lines. The first one is Mark and I got one line open, by the way, folks, we'll take three quick calls Mark, uh, let me turn you on here. Let's see here. All right. So, Mark, are you there? Yes, I am here. All right, my friend. Go ahead.
0: So I wanted to talk about the speech in August of 78 by Bruce R. McConkey McConkie, All Are Alike unto God. Yeah. You mentioned you read it a couple times, RFM, and yes. he did mention one of the reasons for the ban. He fell down on it and repeated it. Where is that? So it's paragraph eight.
2: Let me check this out.
0: You
1: hey, pull it paragraph up. Paragraph eight. Give me two seconds. I'll put it up on the screen. All are alike unto God. Okay. Bruce R. McConkie.
0: I'm on the site speeches.byu.edu.
1: Add to stream. Yes, I'll go there too. One, two, on.
2: three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, I the one that starts sure, with there, there have been, been these, these problems. problems. Okay, I see it. Go ahead. Before Uh, that, he starts
0: talking about how, he starts talking about how the gospel has gone to different peoples at different times. And then he says this paragraph, there have been these problems and the Lord has permitted them to arise. There isn't any question about that. We do not envision the whole reason and purpose behind all of it. We can only suppose and reason that it is on the basis of our premortal devotion and faith. He actually repeats the reason.
1: We can only suppose that it's based on our valiancy in the pre-Earth life.
2: Oh, so what you're saying, Mark, is that he does refer to it, but he doesn't discount it. He adopts it.
0: Yes, he's repeating. He's doubling down on the reason. The only thing he disavows in this when he says, forget everything we said, was the timing they had said it would never happen in our lifetime. Brigham Young said that. You you brought that up. That's what he's saying they were wrong on. What was he's not that? saying it was wrong to have a ban. He goes on paragraph after paragraph about why God has prioritized taking the gospel to different people. He's justifying the ban and gives this reason again. We can only suppose and reason in our heads, right? Reason, think through it that it is on the basis of our pre-mortal devotion and faith.
2: It has to be, doesn't it? But you're right. He says it, and he does not discount it. He does not disavow that reason. Instead, he emphasizes it once more.
1: What does Elder Oaks say? Thank you. Elder Oaks says that what? It was something promptly and, and publicly, publicly disavowed. But in reality, what happens in 1978, Elder McConkie actually testifies of the one theory Mm -hmm. And in 1980, testifies of the other. That's right. He publicly
2: and promptly repeats and reemphasizes the premortal idea. And then two years later, he publicly and not quite so promptly adopts and reemphasizes the seed of Cain idea.
1: Yeah. Elder Oaks, you're a liar. On multiple occasions in one single talk in the B1 celebration. So there's that. He sure is. Thank you, my friend. That was a great great thing to find.
2: Wow, what a great audience we have! I've said it before; I'll say it again. We have maybe the most intelligent audience of any podcast out there.
1: No True lazy drama. learners here. <laughs> All right, this so is my exhibit A. I
3: wanted to. Can I jump in before the next yeah, call, please. Bill?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Hmm. Okay, I'm just um, I'm just not sure if I'll have to jump on like off right at the very end, but. Um, and I didn't ask beforehand, so I hope it's okay. But I, I did just want to give an update um, that Michelle is Stone from 132 Problems is is considering giving another try again to come on. And uh, her last episode where she kind of went over uh, the his, some of the emails, et cetera, that was episode 74, I think did quite a job uh, <laughs> eviscerating everybody. And I don't think we really gave much of a response to that. So I. I ranted on um, and I went through all of them about four hours long. And I'm just curious if the audience is interested in that. And if so, uh, I'll work with Bill to figure out where to put it. Right now, I just have it as unlisted videos on my own channel. Wait a second. You're saying you
2: did a video yourself that was a response and your your response is four hours long?
3: Yeah, I, had, I split it into two parts, actually, because my audio went out at once. So I had to go.
2: <laughs> hey, sign me up. I'm totally interested in that
3: okay yeah and I and I if you ever do say anything or mention it in a podcast of yours I expect you to mention the length of it several times or I will feel personally hurt if you don't okay make I'll try and remember
2: that okay by the way I'm happy right, to then. announce that in honor of me Michelle Stone is renaming her podcast to 133 problems
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> true story
3: yeah, oh. I mean, it, I think it's great she's reaching out again. But the, I think the problem oh my Lord. is she's not is, reaching
2: out again, is she?
3: No, well, she did, and I think that is Admiral Bo. But the what I guess what was just really astonishing was just how how almost everything said or done was twisted. And I've just never seen anybody's ability to do that more than this, and so I—that's—that's that's part of why it took so long for me to kind of go because I really break down just—I just pointing out all the ways um, that anything that somebody would normally see as a good thing, uh, yeah, was just completely. It, it really is entirely backwards. I guess as Bill, as you put it, it's it kind of like bizarro world. It really is like a Twilight Zone kind of a thing. So I don't know. I don't know if she'll still want to maybe talk with us after this, but I, I still feel and I have felt ever since then really unsettled that <laughs> we didn't really get our say. And I, I think it's great, Bill and RFM, actually, uh, that you were fine to just be done with it and maybe not do what I did. But I I wanted to. I had things to say about how that went down, so I said, them um, anyway. Well, I, I appreciate that. We'll figure out where to pull that up.
1: <laughs> when, I
2: appreciate that because there is another side of the story, and what it confirmed to me is what I've known for a long time. For some sixty three, you're a little bit younger than I am, Ava. But when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and when you are a conspiracy theorist, everything looks like a conspiracy theory.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to go along with yeah. that R F M, when when it's like Jacob Hansen or ward radio whenever they take whenever they (laughs) psych ward radio please use the full name when when we say things and we really i think we try damn hard to be honest and truthful and say things as we really see the data pointing to when the other side comes in and cuts out bites and misconstrues your words it doesn't it seems pointless to me to continue the conversation because all i'm going to do is then come back and say the same thing. You, you weren't honest about what I said. You So now we're just playing this game where both sides are saying the other side isn't honest. And I mean no offense, I don't really trust their audience to actually read and study both sides to know which side's telling them the truth. And so I don't want to get engaged in just a back and forth, he, sh- he said, she said. So until right. I can see some level of being able to portray what I'm doing honestly, it doesn't feel worthwhile to engage in a conversation that doesn't seem like it contains all good faith actors. Yeah,
3: unless something can be really different. I, and I've, some people are in the chat saying, like, I would like to see both sides talk it out. And I just want to say, I I agree. But I what we're talking about here, and I guess you'll see if you see what I what I you know created, but yeah, I really mean it when I say everything, anything good or attempted to or tried was it can be twisted. And with that, if, if, if someone is willing to just go through great lengths to see maliciousness in literally everything you do, then there's nothing you can do to make a conversation happen. Mm. And I, I think that's at play here. It's almost like Ninety-five to one hundred percent of 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 this kind of a level of um, of yeah, looking for harm and uh, you know <laughs> conspiracy, really just deliberate ill intent and and malicious action, you know, going on behind the scenes. And so uh, yeah, so if if nothing has really substantially changed, then a the dialogue is still not possible for all the same reasons. So anyway, and I and I wanted last thing is is I think. Uh, i do think that actually michelle's episode maybe unsettled some of our audience again not getting cuz it, it it really was astounding to me it was it, it was the most entertaining thing i've ever seen it's just just to see um, such a different light portrayed i think for all of us and so i think I, most of our audience is great but even even like as i was watching it i could see how convincing she seemed to be, if, if you really, if that's all that you have, uh, we do all look like genuinely terrible people. so that's why I do I do feel like our side is, yeah, I just I just wanted to get it out there, so I will, one way or another. So thanks, everyone.
1: Yeah, make the video public. I'd love that. Okay. okay. All right, we'll go to the next caller. um I've got a thing here. Uh, who's on the line?
0: James Raphael. Right Austin.
1: Austin. How oh. are you, Austin? <laughs> Go ahead, my friend. Hi. You're a so, Mormonism man.
0: <laughs> so, earlier you both invoked the image of Abinadi, and I wanted to make a Hughie Brown comparison. In that letter that you referenced earlier, December 15th, I believe it was 1969, just about a month before David O. McKay died. Harold B. Lee, who was the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve, right? He pushed, according to Gregory Prince and his David O. McKay and the Rise to Modern Mormonism, he pushed this letter about race and the priesthood. True, and Hubie Brown, who was the first counselor, along with another counselor and Eldon Tanner, right? He, um, Hubie Brown, did not want this letter to be read out to congregations, which it ended up being to. Is, is what it says in in Wise of modern Mormonism. And Hubie Brown, his grandson, reported that he was so distraught that he was basically pressured to put his name on this letter. And then after that letter had was, was put out and Harold B. Lee, or or Joseph Fielding Smith, excuse me, became president of the church, right, in the next year, early in 1970 that Hubie brown was put out to pasture not unlike president uchtdorf back in 2018 and that was the first time in 93 years a member of the first presidency was removed after a new president after a new president was 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 put in and i wanted to just bring that up, that if there ever was an Abinadi comparison, perhaps it was Hubie Brown, and they moved him out immediately once they had the first opportunity. And Harold B. Lee became Joseph Building Smith's first counselor in that new first presidency in 1970.
1: I just want to know, if there is ever been a good guy among the top 15, Hubie Brown would be on the short list. But the trouble with Hubie Brown was he seemed to have such a weak disposition that he wasn't going to put his foot down on anything.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. He he was working behind the scenes to try and get
2: that lifted and to try and persuade the very malleable in his dotage, President McKay, to sign off on something. So there was all the stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, Harold B. Lee got wind of it, came in to put the kibosh on it, and that was the genesis, as I understand it, of the sixty-nine. First presidency statement, which Hubie Brown signed, I think it was his grandson or somebody who reported the distraughtness or the distress that he was in talking about crying That's as he right. signed it. Here's the deal. I West love I love, it, yep. I love, Hubie Brown, but if you're that distraught when you're signing something, don't sign the damn thing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Thank you, Colin. Right. And yeah. That, thank and you very it, much. It, Austin. We can go
0: through this one more thing quickly. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. David O. McKay, in his diary in 1963, he recorded he recorded his feelings about, about Black people, the priesthood, anything like that. To give some context, just real quick, in June 1963, John F. Kennedy invited President McKay to the White House for a meeting to discuss Kennedy's proposed civil rights legislation. But President McKay declined the invitation. He actually asked asked James Faust to go to D.C. in his stead. He was the president of the Cottonwood Stake in Salt Lake City at the time. And then in his diary, he said, I told Brother Faust that he should go and find out what President Kennedy is trying to do. I said that I did not like to see a law passed which will make the hotel men violators of the law if they refuse to provide accommodations for a Negro when their hotels are filled with white people or restaurant men made violators when they declined to serve colored people. I said that businessmen ought to be free to run their own businesses and not become lawbreakers if they choose to employ certain people. And if we have such a law as that, then it is unfair to the majority of the citizens of this country. And then in the context of what President Nelson said in a a a church magazine in 1982, quoting him, I never ask myself, when does the prophet speak as a prophet and when does he not? My interest has been, how can I be more like him? And I'll end with that.
1: Thank you, caller. I'll just note, unfair to the majority, early Mormonism wouldn't want to hold that same point of view because it was the majority that were persecuting the Mormons, persecuting. And uh, the church, even though it was the minority, was asking for things to be fair. So such a double standard, huh? Thank you, caller. Have a great day. Yeah. And And then one last one,
2: I understand the reasoning. I understand what it is that president McKay is apparently saying, at least according to Austin, which I have no reason to doubt at this point, I understand why he's saying what he's saying on the flip side of that. And on the more important flip side of that is that's the reason that a constitution with the bill of rights was created by the founding fathers was to avoid the tyranny of the majority.
1: Love it. Exactly. And then it looks like maybe a J Larson, um, is that the name caller? Uh, yes. Yes. All right, you're on Mormonism Hello. Live, my friend. Hello.
0: Um. So back when in 2013, uh, December, when Nelson Mandela passed away, that week after that, the whole world was honoring Nelson Mandela, and that's when the Mormon Church came out with their statement. And I, when they came out with their statement, I, I was so angry that they were stealing Nelson Mandela's limelight or something like. that. Anyway, I'd
4: love to have you guys comment on that. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I think the church has always saw itself sort of in a vacuum, not really self aware of what else is going on per se in the world, other than to drop a, okay. a short statement here or there. To be like very a, selfish. What's that? They're very selfish. Yeah. They're always
0: promoting their own agenda. They're all, That's all they're interested in. Yeah. Thank
3: yeah, you,
2: And James. I know that happens a lot. Thanks. I would suggest, though, okay, bye, Jay. Thanks for calling. I would suggest in this instance, though, uh, I think the church was not trying to steal anybody's limelight. I don't think they wanted anybody to really see this essay that they had put on the website three clicks deep in December of 2013. So I don't think the purpose was to go, hey, look at us over here we're putting up this really neat and important essay. I think that's the last thing they wanted people to know about. Otherwise, they would have advertised it on the front page and mentioned it in general conference. So while I'm saying, yeah, the church, I'm sure, has done that from time to time, I'm not sure I'm convinced that this is one of those instances.
1: Yeah. Uh, So that wraps it up. We've gotten our phone calls. Um, I guess the last thing, I guess any closing words from you, any thoughts from you before we end the show, and then I'll just share a quick thought and we'll...
2: I will say, going back to Elder Oaks and his comments in 2018 at the B1 celebration, which I always spell with the letter B and the number one because it's like a bomber coming over. The B1 celebration. What he does, what he does when he says that he could not gain a spiritual confirmation of any of the reasons, but he decided that he would still follow the prophet. Okay? So what he has told us with that confession about himself is that he has no integrity, but he has an awful lot of loyalty. And here I'm defining integrity as doing what you know is right in spite of what you're told to do. And loyalty being doing what you're told to do in spite of what you know is right. He has zero integrity. He told us as much, but he's got 100% loyalty to the church. And I think that he made a confession, which in my mind, he admitted that he's a gutless wonder. Not only that, he's also giving that as an example for church members to follow. And the reason he's giving that example, you should not have any integrity, you should just have loyalty. Is because not only is that the mainstay of the LDS Church, where obedience is the first law of heaven... And obedience there is synonymous with loyalty to the church and its leaders. But also because he's going to end his talk talking about the disparate treatment that the church continues to give the LGBTQ community. And what he's saying there is very clear. It doesn't make any difference what the reasons are. God has said it, and you need to get on board regardless of what you think personally. The day of the prejudice and the restrictions against black people is gone. It took us 40 years to have a celebration. And that's its own issue, which we won't go into now, because they had been planned before that and then canceled. But the day of discriminatory treatment toward LGBTQ people is still with us. So don't think that just because we stopped discriminating against the blacks means that we're also going to stop discriminating against this other class of church
4: members.
1: The the church has tried to play this game where it's disavowed the theories and then disavowed all racism in the church past and present without any self-awareness that the ban itself was racist, trying to still hang on to it. But the ban itself was racist. It took a people, because simply because of the color of their skin, and it denigrated them to a second-class citizen in the church, and then talked out loud about it. In such offensive ways that were arrogantly and wrongly uh, imposed. The church has misled people on this issue. It, It hasn't been honest about how it got here and what caused the change and where we are now and what beliefs do we hold and not hold and what's really been disavowed and not disavowed. And then Elder Oaks, lastly, it just in that one talk, the B1 celebration, I think he lied at least three times. And I just want to note for the viewers that you have a church leadership with the SEC scandal. You have a church leadership that, um, whenever it can cover its ass, it will be dishonest and deceptive, untruthful, unforthright, non-transparent, inauthentic. It'll do all those things because whatever matters to it, it isn't telling you the truth. That's not what matters. Seems like money maybe matters more than the truth. And and then as you pointed out with the LGBT issue, just as kind of a tying it all together, from Brigham Young through David O. McKay, the leaders of the church seemed completely unable to know truth from air. And yet you as believers, you are, Staying in a church and trusting that its answers in this moment are right when inevitably 125 years from now, there will be things that are disavowed that are in this moment hurting people. And and my suggestion as we close the show is sit with all the things we do to people who have doubts and questions, people who criticize the church honestly and fairly about its dishonesty. Women and their denigrated role within our church system, people of color and the racism that's happened both past and present, Um, and then the LGBT folks. And for those who are believers, recognize just how much harm we do in the name of thinking we're right when inevitably, as we've shown tonight, prophets, seers, and revelators are often dead wrong.